Welcome to the sermon series from Life Church Green Bay. It's our mission to bring the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We're so glad you're here. If this is your first time joining us, we want to do life with you. While you're listening, fill out our hello card on our website so we can connect with you. Visit lifechurchgreenbay.com forward slash hello to fill it up. Make sure to check the I'm new here and online options while filling out the card. Again, we're so glad you're with us today. Here's this week's message. Hey, good morning. Open your Bible. This is 2 Samuel chapter 4, 2 Samuel 4. If you got here today and you didn't bring a traditional Bible, but you want one and you're comfortable, just raise your hand. One of my friends will bring you one. You can either borrow that or you can keep it. It's our gift to you. You can also take your smart device and open up the app that's called YouVersion, or it's also called the Bible app and all the notes and scriptures. Those have already been uploaded. And we'll put all this stuff behind me on the screen just to make it as easy as possible for you. If you're watching us online, you're at one of our other gatherings. I love you guys. So glad that you guys are part of our family. If you're out in the lobby, I'm so glad that you guys are a part of our community. And so give Jesus just a hand clap of praise before we go. Just like, just like, just a little, just a little. Happy Resurrection Sunday. I mean, he is alive, man. That's, this is, this is like what this whole life that we live is all about. I actually bought a special outfit just for today. I didn't wear it because Pastor Sonny, who's in Toronto right now, said that I wasn't allowed to. I bought a t-shirt that had Jesus looking around a corner and it said, guess who's back? Boom, do, 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 back again. She said, bro, you better put a jacket on. I was like, what? Why? This shirt is so dope. She's like, you're going to look like an idiot if you wear that shirt. And so anyway, super glad that you guys are here. Uh, there's just something strange about guys that we love scars. My son, Isaiah, he really loves scars. He, he'll come up, he'll say, oh, daddy, look at this. Uh, or, uh, oh, 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 look at this one. Or, or look at this one. Because he understands that to him, a scar is a symbol of success. He intrinsically gets the idea that we are the sum of our scars, that every scar tells a story. I've told this story before, but a lot of you probably haven't heard it before. When I was a, when I was a junior in high school, we're playing in this huge football game. It was a big playoff game and it was coming down. We were winning and uh, the other team was driving and, uh, and, uh, and, and I, the, our, our coach, I, I played middle linebacker, our coach, he, he called me on a mic blitz. And so I blitzed, I came right through the middle untouched, man. And I hit that quarterback like he had talked about my mama. I mean, I hit him so hard in my hand. I had this perfect form, but my hand, this was back when you could still hit people when you was playing football. I'm just saying. So like my hand came up so perfect and it came up along the side of his helmet and it got, it got stuck inside where his face mask meets his helmet. And then and our outside linebacker came free on a blitz at the same time. And he hit that quarterback in the side of the head with his helmet. And when he hit the side of his helmet, uh, the quarterback's helmet with his helmet, the quarterback spun. And when the quarterback spun, my finger was still stuck in the side of his helmet and it snapped my finger in half and it, and the bone came up out of the end and blood was like squirting all over the place. And I was a little bit in shock and I looked down and I saw that my finger was like in half. It's only being held just by this little skin on my knuckle. And so I started to shake my hand trying to get 
the half of my finger off and, and I ran off to the sideline and my coach came over, Bob Miller came over and he looked at my finger with the bone sticking out and halfway laying down, touching the back of my hand. And he looked at me and said, you think you can still play? I said, coach, I think I ripped my finger off. In true coach form, he grabs my face mask. He says, son, do you think you can play? This is the playoffs. I said, I think I can still play, coach. She had a medic on the sideline who came and brought this needle full of something. I don't know what was in it. But he stuck that needle in the end of my finger and he filled it with something and he laid it up and he wrapped it in tape and he slapped me on the butt. He said, get your butt back in that game. I went back in the game. We won the game. I came off and went to the hospital and they sewed my finger back up. And it, it's so gnarly now. Even to this day, it's like the grossest, gnarliest scar. It goes from one knuckle halfway up my finger, halfway back down, and it ends at the other side. And there's still nerve damage in there. This is like 40 years ago. And if I, if I grab something the wrong way still, it sends this jolt of pain through my body. But my son loves that story. He thinks it's so cool. In fact, I've actually overheard him telling his friends that story because he actually thinks the scar is cool because scars tell a story. They're a symbol of success, a symbol of healing. They're a memento. They represent a memory. We don't like the process, but we do like the product. And so today I'd like to propose to you that your wound is actually your weapon. Let's pray. God, we love you. We're grateful to you. God, this is the day that you have made, so we will rejoice and we will be glad in it. Thank you that you are alive, that you defeated hell, death, the grave, that God, today as we stand here and we celebrate, God, we just honor you for who you are. And so today, before we leave this place, we pray that we would be changed, God. We would be transformed, that we would be different, that when we leave here, we would be less like us and more like you in Jesus' name. Amen. Wounds in war, war and wounds. We live in a world that's racked with wounds and war. On September 11, 2001, an act of war was launched against America, and we were all wounded. We were all scarred, and those scars are still visible every time you want to board a plane. More than 20 years later, the entire travel experience has been impacted by that traumatic day when an act of war was launched on our country. Friends, thousands of years ago, another attack was launched against us in the Garden of Eden when the enemy uttered the words, did God really say? And those first humans, they crumbled. They, they were toppled into a life of sin, and we were all wounded. We were all scarred. Thousands of years later, our entire life experience has been impacted by that traumatic day when an act of war was launched against humanity. And that war is still being waged today, and some of the attacks are external, but some of them are internal. Scripture tells us even though we live in the world, we don't wage war like the world does. For the weapons of our warfare, they aren't even of this world. Instead, they have the power of God to demolish fortresses. We tear down arguments and every proud obstacle that's raised against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive in order to obey Jesus. War and wounds, wounds and war. We live in a world that's racked with wounds and war. 
And no one escapes war without wounds. And some of those wounds are external and some of them are internal. One of the devil's names is the man of war who before time began started waging war against God and since time began has been waging a war against humanity. He's been trying to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He's been looking for anyone, someone whom he may devour. So we are at war. But since the weapons of our warfare aren't of this world, the tactics of our warfare can't be of this world either. So rather than waging war with worldly weapons like revenge and anger and hostility, we wage war with heavenly weapons, things that don't make sense, like peace. As a person of peace, in a place of peace, with the prince of peace. And the book of Ephesians, it paints the picture of the process of peace. And that scripture, it isn't a prediction. It's a promise. But in that promise, there is peace. And that peace is in the pause. It says, we will wrestle. Pause. Not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So the pause provides the promise. And the promise is that you and I, for the rest of our lives, we will wrestle. But the pause also allows for peace because it allows for preparation. Here's what generally happens. People get worried when they have to wrestle. Like if I told you right now, I want you to find somebody of equal size and strength and weight. And when I count to three, Everyone in here, we're going to wrestle until one person has been pinned to the ground. Well, our first inclination is we're actually going to look for somebody who we think is weaker than us. But what happens is we worry when we have to wrestle. That happened to me once. When I was uh, coming into my senior year, my, my football coach had determined that uh, I, didn't have, I didn't have the kind of hip movement that I needed to have. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't getting enough impact in, in my tackles. I didn't have good enough form. And so he referred me to the high school wrestling coach. Now, I was not a wrestler. I was a wrestling fan. I watched the WWF religiously. I was in the Pontiac Silverdome with 92,000 of my closest friends when Hulkamania ran wild and when the incredible Hulk Hogan, the American hero, did the impossible and he body slammed the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant. I mean, I couldn't see it because I was, you know, I was in the top level of the Pontiac Silverdome and so I just went and I went. But yeah, I was there. I was, I was a wrestler. I understood wrestling. I knew I could jump off of the turnbuckle. I could clothesline somebody. And so when I came into the wrestling room, I knew that Hulkamania was about to run wild. When I got into the wrestling room, it didn't look like I anticipated it. It would look like it looked like the high school took the smallest, trashiest broom closet that they had. They wrapped it in, in foam padding and duct tape. And they took every heater on earth and they put it in that room and they turned it up as high as it would go. And when I walked in, everyone in there looked like they were straight off of the Mel Gibson Road Warrior Mad Max movie. Two guys didn't even have an eyeball. I was like, what is happening right now? Everyone's ears were closed. No one could hear. Half of the people couldn't see. There were very few teeth in that room. 
And the, the wrestling coach, he looked at me and, and he told the boys that, okay, we're here. We're here to break Hennessy in. And so, so he looked at a guy who I figured I was going to wrestle. He, he was the top heavyweight. I said, oh, I'm going to take this sucker out. He took the smallest guy that they had. It looked like he could have been my son. Like I could have put him in a front backpack and carried him around Disney World. I looked like I should have put an Elmo leash on him and wandered him around the school. I thought, oh, I'm going to kill this guy. And so the minute that the buzzer went off, Mini-Me got on top of me and he put me in some kind of a chicken wing, some kind of pretzel hold, and I couldn't breathe and I didn't know what was happening. I was crying for my mama. I didn't know what to do. I just knew if I tap out, maybe the pain will stop. And so the littlest, weakest wrestler in the room just demoralized me in front of all of these guys. And I got up, I brushed myself off, and I walked out of the room and I left my manhood behind. Because I was caught off guard. I wasn't prepared. And so because I wasn't prepared, I panicked. And that's what happens to people spiritually when they don't understand the promise that they will have to wrestle. They're caught off guard. They're not prepared. So they panic. And when life starts coming at them, they start saying things like, what am I doing? What am I, what am I not doing? What am I doing wrong? What should I be doing differently? But, but when you and I... When we wrestle, we shouldn't panic because the wrestling isn't the problem. The wrestling is the promise. It's only a problem if you're not prepared. But the preparation has been provided in the promise that says we will wrestle. But not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Next verse. Therefore. That's a pivot word. And the plan is in the pivot. He says, therefore, pivot, put on the full armor of God so that when, that's another promise word, so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able, that's another promise word, you'll be able to stand your ground. Pause. So stand firm. How? With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, which is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, if you'll notice, the only place there wasn't a piece of armor was on the back because in that culture, there was no armor on the back because of their tactics. Every, every soldier had a partner and they were trained to fight back to back. They didn't need back armor because they trusted that their partner would have their back. It's, it's actually where we get our analogy, I got your back. Have you ever trusted someone was going to have your back, but you were wounded? Like, I know it hurt. And, and I also know that this doesn't make any sense, but your wound is actually your weapon. Let me tell you a quick story about someone whose wound was their weapon. It is such a, it's such a great story. It, it says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. How'd that happen? When he was five years old, the news about Saul and Jonathan's death came, and Jezreel and his caregiver picked him up and fled. And, and she fled, and in her haste, he fell. And when he fell, he became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. 
Fast forward 15 years, David's sitting around and he asks, is there anyone still left from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David and the king asked him, are you Ziba at your service? He replied. The king asked them, isn't there anyone who is still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king. Well, I mean, there's still a son of Jonathan, but he's lame in both of his feet. The king asked, where is he? And Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. David said, don't be afraid. I'm going to surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'm going to restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and he said, who's your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? He was wounded, scarred, damaged. Have you ever noticed how damaged people have a tendency to diminish themselves? But then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and he said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson will be provided for. And Mephibosheth will always eat at the king's table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants who incidentally would all work for Mephibosheth for the rest of his life. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like he was one of the king's sons. It's a cool story. Uh, but to fully embrace that story, we have to go back into the life of David because the whole motive for David's actions came from a connection, came from a covenant he had made 18 years earlier where he promised his best friend, Jonathan, that he would never cut off kindness from his sons or his daughters. To fully embrace the story, we have to go back and see the setting. We have to go back and understand the context. See, in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, uh, it, it tells us that, uh, the, that there was the death of David's worst enemy, Saul, and his best friend, Jonathan. Then as 2 Samuel starts, the nation of Israel hears about Saul's death and it splits down the middle. David rules the south and Saul's son Ishbosheth, he rules the north. Then Saul's greatest uh, general Abner is murdered by David's greatest general jo Joab and with Abner gone, Ishbosheth is murdered by his own men who then cut his head off and delivered it to David. So anyone who says that the Bible is boring hasn't actually read it. This is like, the, especially the Old Testament is like the guy's book of guys. It's full of all kinds of dope stuff like that. And then we get to chapter four. And in chapter four, word reaches the woman who's caring for Mephibosheth that his grandfather Saul and his father Jonathan had been murdered and fear, panic, and grief gripped her heart. And it gripped her heart because she knew it was customary in that culture for the new king to kill all the descendants of the old king. So in her mind, Mephibosheth, who was in her care, was now in danger. I want you to just imagine with me, like, like just close your eyes because I want you to imagine with me. I, I want you to understand how I read scripture. I want you to picture this story. With fear in her heart, with adrenaline surging, she rushes around the house. She tosses a few clothes into a bag. She grabs a little five-year-old and she starts running for the hills. 
She runs for about a mile or so, and she realizes that she can't keep this pace for long, so she slows to a brisk walk, carrying her boy in one hand and her bags in the other. As the day starts giving way to dusk, she starts to run again. She's familiar with the area. She knows that there's a cave that she can reach just after dark if she hurries. The weight of the boy in the bags, it's exhausting. The pain in her side, it's, it's excruciating. Her breath is now coming in heaving gasps. As she, as she desperately tries to find the mouth of the cave, the sounds of the night, they're deafening, the chirping of crickets, the low howl of a distant wolf, the high-pitched chipping of a coyote on the ridge, the beating wings of an owl pursuing his prey. The child she's carrying has somehow gone to sleep and his listless body is nearly impossible to manage. Plus the terrain, it, it's no longer friendly. She finds herself on a steep path littered with large, loose stones. Finally, the moon, it's cooperating. The whole landscape has that white, soft light that only a full moon can provide. Just as the visibility increases, she sees a huge pit viper just a few feet in front of her, she turns and she begins a dead run down the path because she's running, because she's running downhill, because the terrain is unforgiving. She slips, she slides, she stumbles. She loses the child. He, he goes flying, flipping through her fingertips. He lands awkwardly on a large stone at the edge of the path. As she reaches, he rocks over the ledge and he falls into the ravine. She's screaming in panic while he's screaming in pain. Both his legs have been wounded. Both his legs are now worthless. And this one single event changes his life forever. His security, it was stolen by one misplaced step on one misplaced stone. Now he's sequestered in a secluded setting under the guise of recovery. Mephibosheth was stuck in Lodibar which literally means the place of nothing. He was in the place of nothing with nothing. No friends, no family, no future. And he was in the place of nothing because he was wounded by someone he trusted. And when you've been wounded by someone you trusted, your natural inclination is to never trust again because we equate wounds with trust. But while in the physical, Mephibosheth was in the place of nothing, in the spiritual, he was in the place of preparation. For 15 years, he was in the pause. And God was working all things for his good. God was getting ready to use his wound as his weapon. And while the men of war were killing all the sons of Saul, Mephibosheth was spared. And he was saved while he was secluded because of his wound. They didn't have to kill him because he was no threat. But see, he was only secluded until his seat with the king was set. He was only in the place of pause until the promise that David had made to his father was prepared. And some of you are wounded today. And some of those wounds are external. They were caused by someone you trusted, a parent, a sibling, a cousin, a friend, a pastor, a priest. Some of those wounds, though, are internal. They were caused by you. You trusted yourself. You didn't mean to go on that website. You didn't mean to develop feelings for that person who isn't your spouse. You didn't mean to misuse those finances, but you did. And because you did, now you're wounded. And you feel like you're in Lodibar, the land of nothing with nothing. You're in the pause. I've been there. And so has he. But there is peace in the pause because the pause provides the promise. And that is Jesus' story. It is what today is all about. He was wounded 
for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and his life was put on pause for three days while he defeated hell, death, and the grave so that by his stripes you could be healed. So while in the physical, you're in the place of nothing, in the spiritual, you are in the place of preparation. You are in the pause. But while you're there, God is working all things together for his good and for yours. He's getting ready to use your wound as your weapon. So while the man of war is raging war on man, you are being protected by his wounds. It's his stripes that have given you your seat at the king's table. So I wonder today, are you in the pause? Don't panic because it's in the pause that there is peace because we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. In your pause, in your pain, he is making preparations for your wound to be your weapon. Would you close your eyes all across this place? He is setting a place at the king's table. When Jesus left his disciples after his resurrection, he said, do not fear, I go to prepare a place for you. He's going to prepare a place for anyone who will accept the invitation to become a part of his family. He, he's preparing a place at the table of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But the only way to access your seat at the table is to accept the invitation of the Son of God. See, that's what salvation is. Salvation, by definition, is a rescuing. That you came here today and you are in pain. You are scarred. You are wounded. You are in the pause. But while you're in the pause, he's making preparations for your peace a peace that is beyond understanding, but a peace that can only be gained through a connection to the Son. So this morning, on this Resurrection Sunday, we want to give you an opportunity to resurrect your soul, to resurrect your spirit, to connect yourself to that King, to connect yourself to the one who holds your invitation to the King's table. In Scripture, it says to have a relationship with Jesus, you need to do two things. You need to confess and you need to profess. You need to confess that you have sin in your life and you need to profess that he can change that. And so once you do those two things, you, you uh, ask him to be what's called your Lord and your Savior. Your Lord, meaning the person who rules over you. Your Savior, meaning the only person who can rescue you. And so this morning, we're going to give you the opportunity to do both of those things, confess and profess. And here's how. In just a moment, I'm going to ask for people to do two things. First, in just a moment, with nobody looking around, I'm going to ask for people who have not accepted their seat at the king's table through relationship with Jesus to raise their hand and make eye contact with me. Once you've made eye contact with me, you can put your hand down. That's your act of confession. Secondly, I'm going to say a few lines of a prayer, then I'm going to pause. And when I pause, everyone in here is going to repeat the words that I said. And if you repeat them and you mean them in your heart, the Bible says that you will be saved. So this morning, I wonder if you're here and you say, Sean, I don't have a relationship with Jesus 
but I want to. I haven't accepted my invitation to the seat of the king's table, but I want to do that before I leave with nobody looking around. Would you raise your hand and make God contact me right now? Thanks. 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 How about in the thanks? Thanks. Thanks. Anybody else? Okay, I'm going to ask everyone in here to say these words after me. Say, Jesus, I've got sin in my life, but I don't want it. Take it. Cleanse it. Clean it. Wash me. Make me different. Make me new. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen. With every head bowed and every eye still closed, I wonder if you're hearing you say, Sean, I'm a Jesus guy or I'm a Jesus girl. I have accepted my seat at the king's table, but there is some sort of a wound that is in you. Whether that wound is external or whether that wound is internal. Scripture says that by his stripes, you are healed. And so today on this Resurrection Sunday, as we celebrate the healed stripes on him, the scars that he carried into eternity, If you're here today and you say, Sean, I've got wounds in my life. I want to pray for you. If that's you, would you raise your hand right now so I can pray for you? Jesus. Jesus, for my friends who are in here, who are hurt, who are damaged, who are wounded, who are scarred. God, I pray peace that surpasses all understanding. God, that you would heal them, that you would guard their hearts and guard their minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Still thinking about the message? Go follow our message recap podcast, Chew On That. The Chew On That podcast is a podcast where Life Church staff chew over the latest messages to dig deeper into our faith. Tap the link in the episode description to have a listen. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week.